0: If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. We will be in verses 15 through 30 in our time together this morning. Luke 18, 15 through 30. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 18, starting with verse 15. Holy Spirit says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. This is God's word, and may God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. How does one get into the kingdom of God? How can one get in God's favor? How can one get into heaven. How do you suppose most people would answer those questions? Different answers would surely abound, but they would all probably boil down to the same handful of options. The Cultural Research Center did a survey in 2020 where they asked questions like those. And what they found was that for those who believe in heaven, a majority of them also believe they will be there. Can you imagine? But what did they base that on? survey found that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. With a plurality of adults believing that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their lifetime, they will earn a place in heaven. Only one-third of adults disagree. Most surprising, says the researchers, in the latest findings, is that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christian— Accept a work-oriented means to God's acceptance. Some, of course, adopt a sort of universalist take that God will simply allow all people into heaven, a sort of justification by death. About a year later, those same researchers published a study entitled Top Ten Most Seductive Unbiblical Ideas Embraced by Americans. According to what that analysis, the top 10 most prevalent seductive, unbiblical ideas embraced by a majority of Americans include having faith matters more than what you have faith in, the idea of karma is real, there is no absolute truth, morality is subjective, in other words, up to each individual, people are basically good. Success is determined by happiness, comfort, goodness, or fulfilled potential, and that most people are not sinful. George Barna says of the results this, so many of these perspectives are about control. Whether we are taking charge of our destiny, our spirituality, boundaries dictated by truth, moral behaviors, or wealth management strategies, Americans are largely driven by a need to have control of every aspect of their lives. He says, biblical Christianity threatens that self-interest by requiring us to deliver control of our lives to God. It is clear, he said, from the research that most individuals, even a large majority of those who consider themselves to be Christians and who participate in Christian activities are unwilling to surrender the reins of their life to God, whom they do not personally know, understand, or trust. Inability to release control the idea that one can earn one's place into the kingdom. These are at the forefront of many people's misunderstandings of sin, salvation, and the gospel, and they're at the forefront of our text this morning. The question this text asks and subsequently answers is this. Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Who can be saved and how? What does Jesus teach about the way into kingdom and salvation, which are speaking of the same thing? We know that Jesus teaches that we need to be saved, right? We know this. But how does he say this happens? In this text, we see three crucial steps that one must take in order to be saved. Truly, if if we're reading this text correctly, we should be stunned by what it says, for just like the previous parable that we explored last week, those who we think are prime candidates for salvation are actually those furthest from grasping it. It reminds us that those who, those things we think should commend oneself to God are actually things that get in the way of receiving the kingdom of Christ. So three steps. Let me just give it to you straight away. Simple enough. Number one, give up. Number two, turn. Number three, follow. So three steps, give up, turn, follow. Simple enough, yes, but difficult in practice. Let's, let's have a look. Point one, give up. Now the texts before and after 15 through 17 may seem disconnected from it, like it's an intrusion into the flow of the story, but they're all actually related. This scene of Jesus with children actually carries with it a similar lesson that the preceding parable did. And it acts as a contrast to the story of the rich young ruler. So Jesus is at an unspecified location when people begin to bring children to him so that he may touch them. That's what it says. Disciples, for one reason or another, do not like this. And they begin to shoo away the people who are bringing their kids to Jesus. Perhaps the disciples thought Jesus is too busy to bother with these kids. Maybe they thought that the kids infringed on Jesus' time. The kids were, in other words, not important enough in the minds of the disciples to be near Jesus. So Jesus, however, rebukes the disciples for rebuking the parents of the children. And he says this, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Then he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Now, We like this scene, right? Because we are people who prize children. Isn't that true? And we should, right? Societally, we hold children in high esteem. Now, not everybody in our culture does, of course, but for the most part, we do. We talk about our kids. You talk about your kids? Yes, you do. Marvel at our kids. Do you do that? We put pictures of our kids everywhere, don't we? We brag about them post every single thing they do on social media. I know this is true. I'm friends with you there, so that others will marvel at them as well. We center our lives around them and more. We love our kids, and we want people to think they're as great as we think they are. But absolutely no one in the first century Palestine or in the Roman world looked at kids like that. No one. You could go back and read ancient literature and look for someone treating them the way that Jesus treats them here, and their search would be a vain one. In the ancient world, childhood was something simply seen as an unavoidable and uncelebrated interim until the young could get to an age to contribute something to society. That's how they saw kids. Ancient world didn't celebrate children for their accomplishments because they didn't have any. They were seen as necessary burden. That, that is, if they survived past age 10, which many did not. Nor did they celebrate even childlike qualities like we do. Children were near the bottom of the societal rung. They weren't as hated as tax collectors, but neither were they prized or championed or looked at in a positive way. I remember not long ago, coincidentally, a radio host named Dennis Prager, or Prager said on his show that he saw a sign in a fifth grade classroom in New York and the sign said, the world is better because you are in it. That's fairly innocuous, isn't it? <laughs> he then said this, that that quote was stupid, his words, and not true. Then he said this, what has any fifth grader done <clears throat> to have made the world better because he or she is in it? As what he said. Most people in the first century would have nodded their head at that horrible take. They would have seen children as only of value when they could contribute something to society because that's how they placed value on people and things. They, they would have thought that children were those who had no rights and were, quite frankly, a nuisance. But is that what Jesus thinks? Jesus, he's the key for us, does not place value on people based on how society sees them. He does not place value on people based on how they benefit the economy. He does not see people only as valuable when they make some contribution. In fact, he holds up those that society doesn't value because he sees interesting value placed on them by their creator. Jesus is shown as someone who does not bar access to himself to anyone and shows that every person is significant in his eyes. And he calls for his people to image him by specifically targeting and welcoming those whose society treats cheaply with no thought of what they could bring to the table. Why? Because as this text will continue to show us, those who are poor and marginalized and looked down on by society are prime candidates for the kingdom of God more so than those who we would think would be according to the standards and ethics of the world that we adopt. We must not miss, however, what the main point of this scene is. The main point of this scene is not to tell us who we should receive. Should we receive children? Yes, of course. But that's not the point of this scene in particular. Listen, this scene is not about who we should receive but about how we can be received into the kingdom. It's not fundamentally about how one should receive children, but about how one must be like a child to receive Jesus. There's a difference, right? This is about the posture one must have in order to be saved. See see again what Jesus says. Look, look at the text. The kingdom belongs to one like This, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter in. What does that look like? We can't physically go back and become children again, right? So how does one become like a child? It is not, as some suppose, about mimicking the virtues that we see in children, like innocence or humility or anything like that. David Garland says, Jesus does not refer to some inherent quality in children, Such as their imagined receptivity, humility, lack of self consciousness, transparency, hopefulness, openness to the future, simplicity, freshness, excitement, or any other idealized quality that commentators often attribute to children. None of those virtues were associated with children in the first century. And they reflect a contemporary sentimental view of children. So when the disciples heard, You must be like a child to receive the kingdom. They wouldn't here adopt the qualities that people in 2023 would think are cute and commendable. That's not what they would hurt. Because if it were based on those qualities, then that would mean the kingdom could be merited in some way. Which is the exact opposite of the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus is not blessing children for their virtues, but for their deficits. Children are important, says James Edwards, because of what they lack. They are small, powerless, without sophistication, overlooked, dispossessed. Jesus emphasized in the strongest possible way that the kingdom is offered to the helpless, needy, powerless, and weak. Don't you see? So when I say that our first point is give up, what I'm saying is you have to give up control. You have to give up trust in your abilities and your virtues. Give up on your delusions of power. Give up on your idea that the kingdom can be merited by the strong and competent or put together and powerful. The merit, if we want to put it like that, of childlikeness is unworthiness. It's that there's no merit. (laughs) Here's the point, okay, you ready? To be received... By the kingdom, we must have dependent trust on God like children are dependent on their parents. You see? That's the point. We have to have dependent trust on God like children are dependent on their parents. Think about it at the most basic level, okay? Consider the word, you see in verse 15, this word in the ESV is translated infants. That's literally the word baby. What can a baby do for themselves, What can they do to merit good things from their parents? Babies are utterly helpless. They're dependent completely on forces outside of themselves. They can't fend for themselves. They can't come up with ways to take care of themselves. They can't even provide the basic necessities of life like food and shelter. In the womb, they're completely dependent on their mother. Then, outside of the womb, they're what? Completely dependent on their mother because they're helpless. They can't lift up their own heads. They can't lift up their own bottle to their mouth to feed themselves. Babies are even more helpless than a child is. You know, kind of like how a tax collector was considered worse than most sinners. And there's the emphasis, right? Like the previous text, the emphasis here is on grace, not merit. The question is, who are you depending on to get into the kingdom of God? who are you trusting to provide for your needs, including salvation? Who do you trust most of all? This need for dependent trust like a child is an ego hit to the self-sufficient and self-made. It is a humbling thing indeed to be told you cannot do something. Isn't that true? I'll show you. That's what society has told us to respond to that, right? It is an ego hit to be told that you cannot earn something no matter how strong and competent you think you are. You're really as helpless as a newborn baby. And if you cannot get to that place of humility, you cannot be received in the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us that you simply cannot retain control and independence of your life and simultaneously be welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. You can't be powerful and enter the kingdom. You can't be strong and enter the kingdom. You can't be someone who relies on themselves to provide what you need and depend on God at the same time. You must surrender. You must adopt the posture of someone who is dependent on God for everything. Russell Moore said it like this in his excellent book, The Storm Toss Family. He said, at the cross, Jesus demonstrated that the weakness of God is more powerful than the strength of the world, that dependence upon God is greater than independence of self-effort. We are called to be conformed to that cross, even in the way that we are born, not as self-sustaining producers, but as frail, fragile children of dust. We're not promoted into the kingdom, or we're not recruited into the kingdom. We are begotten into the kingdom, born again to newness of life. And we arrive there just as we arrived in the first birth, carried by a power other than our own. In order to find the kingdom, we must find that weakness again. That doesn't make sense to a world like ours. And didn't make sense in a world like the one Jesus spoke these words into. We must give up, give up control of our lives and any thought of meriting or earning entrance into the kingdom, but also we must point to turn, turn, turn away from our self-reliance, turn to God independent trust, but also turn away from our idols. As mentioned, it makes contextual sense that the disciples tried to shoo the children away. But perhaps the scene in 15 through 17 and 18 through 30 happened right after one another. Perhaps the disciples saw people bringing kids to Jesus and then they turned and they looked and what they see a rich young ruler maybe is approaching and they thought these kids offer nothing to the mission. Let's get them out of here so Jesus could talk to this rich man. Now, there's a prime candidate for the kingdom. I mean, let's just be really honest with ourselves, all right? We aren't that much different from the disciples, are we? We do, in fact, look at this scene with the posture of a Pharisee from the previous parable and say, I would never send the children away. How could the disciples do such a thing? And we wouldn't admit so easily that a rich guy who was a community leader would have would be given a place in the church over children. We wouldn't admit that. Not a lot. We wouldn't be so brash as to say that. Instead, what churches will do is tell kids to leave the worship center so they could go to some room out of earshot where they won't bother us while we worship. Right? We would say we prioritize little children, but shoot a look at a young mom who has a wiggling child or a babbling baby during worship. We wouldn't say we prize influence and wealth, but we typically allow those who have stature and money onto our committees and our boards and our trustees or make them deacons even if they're not biblically qualified because, well, they're good at business or they have a good reputation. Or we make decisions in church based on who might get rankled and therefore might take their tithe check elsewhere. Am I wrong about any of that? Is that the posture Jesus takes? Let's just be serious, okay? We would not have done what Jesus did in 18 through 24 with the rich young ruler. We would not. He's he's an ideal candidate for church membership, isn't he? He's moral. He's rich. He has influence. Are we really going to tell him it's hard to enter the kingdom of God if you're rich? It's like Jesus didn't read all those church growth books or something. Randy Alcorn says, we would certainly handle the situation different. First, we'd probably commend the rich young ruler for his interest in spiritual things. Then we might tell him, just believe, that's all. Ask God into your life, you don't have to do anything. When he said, okay, I believe, which no doubt he would since it costs nothing, we would consider him a follower of Christ. Then how blessed we would feel knowing that God's kingdom was greatly enhanced by the conversion of this well-known wealthy man. But one of the ways in which we could become like little children is by upending how we view greatness and power. Which only comes from adopting a kingdom way of seeing the world. And that's utterly, completely, wholly different than what we're used to or what we're told matters in a fallen world and culture like ours. For example, if I introduced my four-year-old son to a famous athlete or actor or musician, he would be unimpressed. He'd probably say, oh, and then ask if he likes dinosaurs or what his favorite Paw Patrol character was. If I introduced him to someone who was wealthy and told him how much that person had in their bank account, he wouldn't care at all. If I introduced him to someone and I said, Augie, this man is well-respected in the community, he'd look at the man and he'd probably run away and play. Why wouldn't he be impressed by all those folks? Because he doesn't have a category for power and importance in the way that we do. To him, the athlete, that important person, is just another fella. And as unimpressed as he would be, you know who would be even more unimpressed? My one-year-old daughter. We need to adopt a posture like that. In a way we see people and the way we present the gospel. We need to see people as image bearers in equality without elevating people by worldly standards we need to be sure we do not soften the demands of Jesus for the sake of growing a crowd or attracting the affluent. This man comes up to Jesus, he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the same question the lawyer of chapter 10 asks Jesus almost word for word. But unlike the lawyer, the rich man, he's not setting a trap. He genuinely wants to know how he can inherit eternal life. It's a good and sincere question. He calls Jesus good which may be an attempt at flattery or favor of some sort. Jesus responds with something that I think catches us off guard, right? He asks, why do you call me good? Now, this is not Jesus saying he isn't good, right? He's perfect, he's divine, he's never committed a single sin, but he's sidestepping the man's flattery, which gets him nothing before Jesus. But more than that, Jesus is questioning the rich ruler's conception of good. As if to say, you sure you know what good is? Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, Why do you call me good has a rhetorical function anticipating the rest of the story. For it will become evident that the rich ruler, though he claims to be good, does not really know what goodness is. The ruler, in other words, is self-deceived about his own goodness. The requirement to inherit eternal life is righteousness and justification. Jesus wants to know from the mouth of the rich ruler, do you have sufficient righteousness? So says Jesus, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He cites 7, 6, 8, 9, and 5 of the Ten Commandments, which all, did you notice, have to do with how you treat other people. Observes Daryl Bach, in Luke, the rich are often warned of the danger of self-focus that could come from wealth, so appeal to these commands would reinforce the ruler's need to keep an outward focus. Further, The way in which one sees and treats others is a sign of how one views themselves before God. Like we said last week, if you're someone who believes themselves to be holier and more moral and more ethical than other people, you will treat them in kind as people who are below you and deserving of contempt. You simply cannot be someone who is loving God if you fail to love others. You can be religiously scrupulous and you can keep all the rituals, but if you fail to love others, including your enemies and those at the bottom of society, your religion counts for nothing. People will only treat others well when they rightly assess themselves before God. Has he done that? That's the question, right? The question before the rich young ruler is this. Is he good? Does he have sufficient righteousness of his own to enter the kingdom of God? He thinks he does. He says, I've kept all of these from my youth. And look, he may, like the Pharisee in the previous parable, sincerely believe he has kept all these commandments. But like the Pharisee, he does not realize how deep the infection goes. He may not realize that externally abstaining from committing these sins does not therefore render one off the hook. For one can break these commandments in heart, yes? The rich young ruler does not believe he has any lack. In his mind, he lacks nothing. He believes he is good, and on top of that, he is wealthy, which to him was a sign of God's blessing and affirmation. Wealth creates this sort of reliance that could believe one has no lack and is dependent on no one and nothing. And isn't that why the Bible is so hard on wealth? It isn't, of course, that the rich are inherently more sinful than the poor. Poverty doesn't give you anything in the kingdom on its own. Rather, the repeated warnings about wealth have to do with the temptation to trust in yourself and your stuff. And an inability to admit helplessness and hopelessness and need and lack. It's just a fact that the more you have, the more difficult it is to cry out in desperation. That's just a fact of life. In the great book, Church in Hard Places, Mez McConnell and Mike McKinley uh, show this rather clearly. Mez, if you don't know him or that name isn't familiar, he's from Scotland. He started a Church Planning Network called 20 Schemes, which uh, plants churches in the poorest areas of Scotland. And in the introduction, this is what he says. He says, I noticed that when I tell stories about ministry to the poor in Brazil and Scotland, to other pastors, they often pat me on the back and say something like, well done, mate. I couldn't do what you do. It sounds so hard. He says, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the sentiment. And it's nice to get a pat on the back once in a while. But here's my dilemma. In some ways, it's not hard at all. I would even say living and working among the poor can be very easy. Sometimes I feel like I need to come out officially as a pastoral fraud and say to my friends pastoring in wealthy areas, well done to you, mate. Yours is the harder ministry. Then he says this, when I listen to pastors battling away around Europe and the States in well-off areas, I break out in a cold sweat. How do you evangelize in an area where everybody has a decent paying job, a nice place to live, and possible a car or two in the driveway? How do you talk to a guy who feels no need for Christ because he is distracted by materialism? In the Scottish schemes where I now pastor, I can have a conversation about Jesus any day of the week. I could call a man a sinner, and he will probably agree. I rarely meet atheists among the poor. Why would he say that? It's because those who are used to admitting need in terms of earthly treasure will likely struggle less to admit their spiritual bankruptcy. What is commendable about little children? What is it that we're supposed to imitate that we have nothing and we lack everything and therefore we can lift our hands towards God like a toddler toward a father to be picked up because he knows there's safety in his father's arms? and then subsequently live with a posture of dependent trust. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, you lack something. So all you have, give it to the poor, follow me. And this is the irony, right? The children possess nothing, yet the kingdom is theirs. The ruler possesses everything, yet he has lack. He has to become like a child, he has to rid himself of self-dependency and then cast himself on God. Let's be real. We don't think about money the way that Jesus does. We just don't. Jesus sees money as one of the greatest spiritual dangers there is. He tells us to be hypervigilant, to be on constant lookout so that the things we possess won't possess us. We don't see money as a danger. We see money as a good thing. We see the wealthy as those to be envied, not pitied. And further, hardly anyone sees themselves in danger of greed because they, once again, do what the Pharisee did, compare yourself to other people, and in that case, you will always be able to find someone wealthier than you. And you could say, I'm not rich. Now there's a guy who's really rich. Remember Teve from uh, Fiddler on the Roof? We could be like him. He sings, if I were a rich man. And wonder what he could do if he just had a little bit more and a little better. And then someone comes up to him and he says, you know, the money's the world's curse. And he said, may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. Jesus tells the man, sell what you have, distribute it to those who have nothing, then follow me. Then you can be received into the kingdom. This was received as bad news to the rich young ruler who, says Luke, became very sad. Well, why, Luke? Why? He tells us, doesn't he? Because... He was extremely rich. It's just too big of an ass from Jesus. He was just too wealthy. Exchanging his stuff for the kingdom was not a good deal, according to the rich young ruler. He wasn't rich for no reason, right? He knew how to handle his money. He did a cost-benefit analysis in his head, and the benefit did not outweigh the cost to him. He ran the numbers, as it were, and it wasn't worth it. Jesus wasn't worth it to him. The problem isn't that the man had money. It's that the money had him. His possessions possessed him. Money was his God, and he wasn't going to tear it down for anyone. Wealth, says Bach, can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impossible peephole. The self-focused security of the wealthy is a padlock against kingdom entry. Jesus is offering himself, don't you see, as a substitute for the man's wealth for him to move from trust in self and stuff to childlike trust in Jesus. The man is invited to give up his idol money, and it would be replaced with Jesus. But the man didn't like that deal, so he went away unsaved, still not a member of the kingdom of God, and sad. You know, what we want to do at this juncture is soften Jesus' words, don't we? To say, Jesus isn't telling us we have to sell all we have and give it to the poor. That's true, right? Fair enough. Jesus isn't, in fact telling each one of us to sell what we have, right? Give it away. This can't be denied. But maybe he is telling some of you that. We would say, surely Jesus wouldn't tell me to give up all I have. Are you quite sure about that? He may not be telling you to give away all you have. Maybe that's not your idol. Maybe it's something else. What is it for you? Maybe, maybe a, a definition of idol will be helpful. Tim Keller offers this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can. And then he goes on to say this, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that, listen, should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you could spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It could be family and children, career making money, achievement and critical acclaim, saving face and social standing. It could be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. And idols, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship, he says, to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, it is an idol. So for you, what is it that fits that definition? Put yourself in the scene. You go up to Jesus and you say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, one thing you lack, give up this. And it would cause you to pause or go away sad. What what would this be for you? Jesus is telling us in vivid clarity that we cannot enter the kingdom of God while having a death grip on our idols. Maybe, you know, maybe it really isn't money or possessions for you. It might be, but maybe it's something else that you say, Lord, don't make me part with this. And you need to therefore decenter it from your life and put Christ there instead. None of us can enthrone the true God in our hearts and lives unless we dethrone our other gods. There's only one spot on the throne of your heart, and Jesus does not intend to share it. Have you dethroned the gods in your life that are vying for your attention, allegiance, and affection, I wonder? See, like the rich young ruler, Jesus is offering to be the substitute for whatever it is that claims your loyalty above him. And this brings us to our third and final point. Point number three, follow, follow. Notice that it isn't enough to simply identify and uproot idols, Jesus doesn't just tell him, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and the kingdom of God is yours. Eternal life is yours. He says, uproot your idol and what? Follow me. In other words, it isn't simply that we see that we are idolaters and then say, okay, I'm going to stop worshiping that thing. That won't do it. You need to see them, decenter them, and then replace them with Christ. That's what he's offering. You know, many years ago, Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can read this online. The thesis of which was essentially this. We can only resist the pull of the world if our love for it has been replaced with a new, more intense affection. Think of an idol like a weed or a parasitic plant which steals nutrients from other plants. They might not be all that bad to look at. You got weeds on your yard, right, some of them? They're not terrible to look at, but they're not helpful, are they? Mowing over them, what will that do? Nothing, really, because they'll sprout up again a couple days later. Some, like crabgrass, grow at four times the rate of the grass you actually want. Mowing over the weeds would be easier, but it doesn't really do anything, does it? You know what you're going to have to do, right? You have to get in the dirt, and you're going to have to grab the weeds, and you're going to have to pull them from their root, but even that's not enough have to spray some herbicide or replace it with something better, perhaps something more beautiful like a rose bush, if we're going to rid ourselves of idolatry, we need not just identify them. We need to tear them from the central place they have in our hearts. And that's not even enough. Because if we don't replace them with Jesus, they'll pop back up or some other idol will just replace them. Jesus is the only one who could fill the void left by our uprooted idols. And he is telling us this plainly in this text. Says Keller once more, Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It's setting up of the whole heart on something besides God. This can't be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. Following Jesus then means more than walking an aisle and praying a prayer and saying you will try to be a good little boy or little girl from henceforth. It means a complete change in orientation of your life. Do you you get that? Do you understand this? It means getting up every day, reminding yourself of the gospel, and choosing Jesus again and again and again. It means when confronted with following something else or following Christ, you choose Christ even if it costs you. We must never get over the astonishment of the gospel. We must never move past infatuation with Jesus. We must never get over the miracle that we are saved at all. No Christian should ever be far from this astonishment that says, I of all people, I should be saved and loved and embraced by God's grace and welcomed into his kingdom as a beloved daughter or son. No Christian, when they're asked if they are one, should say, of course. It's hard work, but I'm trying. There is no of course about the gospel of grace. There is only astonishment that if we move past being astonished that we of all people are saved by God's grace we should be very concerned because there's a good chance we don't understand the gospel. My friend, if you're a Christian, your salvation is a miracle. Do you realize that? A miracle. See what happens next in the text? Jesus turns to the disciples. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, these are a couple verses where we are certain Jesus didn't really mean what he said. Am I right? Surely he meant something else. He didn't really mean it was hard for a rich person to get into heaven, right? The lesson surely isn't that he expects his would-be followers to give up things to follow him, does he? Like some will say, you know what some people will do with this text, and they're real smart? No, they'll say, you know, there was a gate. Ancient gate called eye of a needle, and it was small and short, and camels would have to crouch to get through and they'd have to shed their bags, and that they were carrying to get through. That's what Jesus is talking about. Shed your bags, and you're good to go. He meant it's hard, not impossible. That's what they say. I mean, that sounds nice. It's so wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying it would be easier to shove the largest animal in Palestine through one of the smallest openings you could think of, a sewing needle, So really, Jesus is using hyperbole. Listen, not that it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven, but that it's impossible. For a rich person to be saved, it would take a miracle. For you or I to be saved, impossible. If you're trusting in your ability to keep commands, you will not get into heaven. If you trust in your ability to be moral, you will not enter the kingdom of God you're trusting on your reputation and your bank account or your stature or your religious record you will not be saved if you're trusting yourself in any way shape or form you will not get in the kingdom if you're dependent on yourself you can't enter the kingdom if you, if you think you are someone who should be in the kingdom you are not fit for the kingdom so who could be saved with man impossible hopeless helpless drowning wretched wrath deservers We need a miracle. And thankfully, Jesus is in the business of performing miracles. With man, impossible. With God, possible. Disciples asked in response to Jesus' statement about the impossibility of salvation of the rich, then who can be saved? Because the common thought was that if one was wealthy, it was because they have God's favor. They were rich because God approved of them. That's why he blessed them with earthly wealth. So they're surprised Jesus would say this. It flies in the face of what they always thought. And Jesus ruins the idea that earthly blessing means one has the approval of God. He throws that completely out of the window. Chrysostom said, let us learn not to call the rich lucky nor the poor unfortunate. That's what Jesus' ethic is. Jesus flips everything on his head and he says, if it's up to man, no one can be saved. Thankfully, it's not up to man. James Edwards says, who then can be saved is a plea of exasperation, but unbeknown to the hearers, it's a doorway to hope. The admission to human impossibility opens the door to divine possibility. Something that is impossible for men is possible with God. You can't shove a camel through the eye of a needle, but he can. You can't get to heaven or in the kingdom or be saved through merit of your own. We have to realize that because if we aren't knocked flat by the gospel and the impossibility of our affecting our own salvation, we won't supplant idols. We won't pay the cost of following Jesus. We won't take up a cross and suffer for this gospel because we won't think it's worth it. We won't think he is worth it. In other words, seeing our salvation as the miracle of all miracles is a key to kingdom entrance. Why are the children to be emulated again? Because they're meritless and helpless. They can be then dependent on God for everything. Again, we like to soften things up, don't we? We'll do anything to skirt the reality of our fallen state. But our softening ends up de the gospel, which makes it no gospel at all. We'll say things like, God accepts you just the way you are. Have you ever thought that? That's not true, is it? God accepts you just the way you are. Since the fall of Adam, God has only loved one person just the way he was. The gospel is better than God loves you just as you are. The gospel says that God loves you not unconditionally, but contra-conditionally, despite the way you are. The gospel says God accepts you just as Christ is. Isn't that better news? Says David Pallison. God never accepts me as I am. He accepts me as I am in Jesus Christ. The center of gravity is different. The true gospel does not allow God's love to be sucked into the vortex of the soul's lust for acceptability and worth in and of itself. Rather, it radically decenters the people, what the Bible calls fear of the Lord and faith, to look outside themselves. And these truths should floor us to the point that we will follow Jesus all of our lives, even if it means we give up our wife or brother's or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because we see Christ as worth whatever we lose. Because he is more than enough for us. And we know his promises are true, that he will give us many more in this age and the next of whatever we lose for him and the kingdom. Jesus is calling here for unconditional surrender for those who would follow him. The rich young ruler could not bring himself to become a child. He loved his money because his money provided him security. And without his security, what did he have? What could he do? He'd have to trust and depend on God. He couldn't do that. What do you have that is keeping you from unconditional surrender to Christ? What is it that is keeping you from costly obedience? We think that giving up idols, costly obedience, suffering for the gospel, that's that's for missionaries, right? Christians in third world countries who are persecuted. Not me, not us, surely. Mark Sayers said the heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. But according to Jesus, there is no other followership. No other way to decenter idols, no obedience that isn't costly. But he's worth it. Because he's all we need. And more, Some of you are unwilling to part with something in order to obey Christ. Some of you are trying to hold on to your idols while holding on to Jesus. And he says, it can't be done. Some of you are trusting on all kinds of things that you think will get you into heaven. Some of you are relying on the religion of your parents or your past or of your record or of your reputation. And you've never had a childlike posture of dependence on Jesus. You've never turned away from your idols. You've never been willing to forsake that thing that you think you need in order to truly follow Jesus. For some of you, your identification with Jesus hasn't cost you a thing. Why is that? Could it be that you're not following him as you ought? Could it be you've toppled a nary and idol? Could it be that you don't see him as worthy substitute for what you would lose? The only people who will be accepted into the kingdom of God in the future must enter. Have you given up dependence on yourself in favor of dependence on God like a child reaching up their arms to their parent? Have you? Have you turned from your idols, uprooted them, and given Jesus your ultimate allegiance? Have you followed him? Have you ultimately seen the beauty of Jesus? That your salvation is a miracle and that it's a miracle bought and paid for by the blood of Christ? Isn't he worth the surrender? Isn't he worth everything? Would you go to him now and lay down your idols? Don't be someone today who sees the glory of Christ and walks away sad. Go to him. And in him, though you might lose many things, you will find in him everything.